Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please uh, go with me to Psalm 88. And as you go there, let me say that it is a sweet joy to be here this morning. I have the uh, privilege to see your pastor, Samuel Klintuck, uh, in various different conferences. And it is a joy to accept this invitation to share the word uh, with you. Please know that we pray regularly as a church for you. Uh, probably like once every other month, we have your name, uh, your church's name in our uh, list of prayer, and we pray for you regularly. So let that encourage you. So we are in Psalm 88, and let me draw your attention before we read it to a few things about this psalm. There is no sadder psalm in the Psalter than Psalm 88. It is one of the most tragic songs that you'll ever find in your Bible, actually. One commentator says that this psalm is full of the dread of death. As the psalmist laments his condition as one who is doomed to die. You know probably the name Matthew Henry, the uh, great old Puritan. He comments about this psalm. This psalm is a lamentation, one of the most melancholic psalms. Of all the psalms. It does not conclude, as usually the melancholic psalms do, with the least intimation of comfort and hope, but from first to last it is mourning and woe. Another commentary put it like this This psalm is the most depressed of all the laments of the Psalter. The writer's distress can be heard from beginning to end. But my friends, this psalm is not without hope. Remember that. There was a, uh, a theologian, there is a theologian, who a number of years ago wrote a, an article that's called What Do Miserable, Miserable Christians Sing? And he wrote that article because he noticed that many of the songs that we sing today in our churches are happy. And upbeat. So he ponders the question, what do Christians who are struggling with great trials and troubles sing if the only thing we ever sing in the church is happy? Well, this psalm is part of the answer to that particular question. Let me outline this psalm for you before we read it. First, you will see in verses 1 and 2 a continuing prayer that is unanswered. It is interesting. This is not the first time that the psalmist is praying this prayer. This is a continuation of an ongoing answer prayer. You see that in verses 1 and 2. Then in verses 3 to 9, the psalmist will recount for you his miseries. If you don't know what's going on in his life, he will tell you what's going on. In verses 3 to 9, he recounts what is going on in his life. Then in verses 10 to 12, he asks God a searching question about God's glory and his own death. He asks God a searching question about how does a person glorify God in death? We die. How can we glorify God? And then finally, and fourthly, in verses 13 to 18, the prayer continues still unanswered but now with two more 
searching questions. Why? And why you, O Lord? Why are you doing this? Let's pray, and then we'll read this psalm. Father, thank you for your word. Without your word, we are nothing. So enlighten us, Father, with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the, the Psalm 88. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leanoth, a mascal of Haman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shot in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me, my companion have become darkness. Amen. Maybe you think that Christians don't ever get this kind of soul darkness. Or that they shouldn't. Or at least that godly, mature Christians don't. Well, here is a man who led the people of God in worship in the Old Covenant in the temple established by David and wrote songs for them and worshiped God before them and all the lights have gone out. 
Here is a man who prays and who keeps on praying while everything in his life is screaming to him, your God does not hear you. Your God does not care about you. Your God is not going to deliver you. Psalm 88 is the witness of a believer who sees no light at the end of the tunnel. And there are Christians, in fact, as a pastor, I have had the privilege to see some of the most extraordinary Christians that I have ever met who, through the debilitating illness of body or mind or a devastating uh, or cruel treatment or a personal tragedy, have found themselves, themselves exactly where Haman the Ezraite is. And so this psalm has something to teach us. And I would like you to look at it with me in those four parts that I mentioned before. Number one, in verses one to two, notice the desperate, ongoing, unanswered prayer. The psalmist has been pleading, crying. Crying is the Old Testament word for praying. A cry has a force of that urgency and seriousness. And this psalmist is desperate he is in a very hard place and so he cries out to god but the plea for help is met with a deafening silence that the psalmist is seemingly unheard brothers and sisters sometimes even strong believers feel as if their cries for help have gone unheard if you look at 1 Kings 4.31, let me tell you something about the author of this psalm. He was accounted one of the five wisest men of his time in the Middle East. When God wants to tell you how wise Solomon was, he tells you that Solomon was even wiser than Haman the Ezraite. Now, this lets you know how deep how mature, how godly, and how profound, and how insightful this man really was. And yet, this is the psalm that he writes, a psalm filled with darkness and hopelessness, God-fearing, Jesus-trusting, loving, mature believers have found themselves in Psalm 88. Haman the Ezraite did. Secondly, notice in verses 3 to 9, that though he feels unheard, though he wonders whether God cares for him, Haman is absolutely certain of God's sovereignty over his sufferings. Look at his language in verses 3 to 9. It essentially says, Lord, you are doing this. God is behind this. Haman feels like he's got one foot in the grave and he's being pushed there, and he identifies the pressure as God. Listen to what he says. Verse 3, my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to shield. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. But what does he say, beginning in verse 6? You have put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me. Verse 7 again, you overwhelm me with all your waves. Verse 8, 
You have caused my companions to shun me. Again, verse 8, you have made me a horror to them. I have seen many troubles, says the psalmist. But he ends every sentence by saying, you put me there, God. You put me there, O Lord. This is interesting because the the psalmist, being where where he is, never considers for an instance that God is not in control. That is not one of the psalmist's explanation of what is going on. The psalmist does not doubt for a moment that God is in control. Very often, when we encounter deep, severe trials and sufferings in the Christian life, we are tempted to think that God is not in control. And some people, like myself, are tempted to try and encourage others by telling them that God is not in control. Oh, God had nothing to do with that, sister. He didn't know what was coming. He's not in charge of evil, you see. He's only in charge of good. Well, Haman, the Hezrahite, one of the, one of the five wisest men of his time, did not believe that. He believed that God was completely in charge of everything, including his troubles. And so it is not one of the ways that he copes with his troubles to push God away from them. You don't have anything to do with this, God. No, he goes to God as the sovereign who rules heaven, earth, and even his troubles. Then, number three, in verses 10 to 12, we find a truly profound question. He comes with a searching question. And you would expect that, right? You would expect that searching question from such a wise man. Well, here it is, verses 10 to 12. And the question essentially is, how can I live for your glory, God, if I am dead? How can I live for your glory if I am dead? I know that I am put here to live for your glory. I know that the chief end of man is to glorify God. I know that in all things, whether I eat or drink, I am to do all things to the glory of God. I know that is why I am put here. I am put here to praise you, God. Not just when I'm leading your people, but also in every aspect of my life. I understand that. How am I going to do that if I'm dead? Answer me, God. That is the question in verses 10 to 12. Read with me. Do you work wonders for the dead? In other words, when I'm dead, Lord, how are you going to answer my prayers? How are going to people say, oh, what an amazing answer to prayer the Lord gave to brother Haman over there? He's dead. How are you going to do that, Lord? Keep on reading. Do the departed rise up to praise you? Lord, when I am in the grave, when they bury me in that grave, how am I going to sing to you in the temple? Verse 11. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave 
of your faithfulness or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? It's basically saying, Lord, when, when my body is running away, will people say, well, the Lord was really faithful to him. The Lord really loved him. You see what he's asking, right? How is it that I can live for your glory when your answers to my prayers can get you glory if I die? Now, notice that even in his pain, this man has not forgotten the reason why he was created. These questions do not come from doubt, but faith. They don't come from unbelief. They come from belief. He just can't square the belief together. He knows that God is sovereign. does not deny that. He knows that he was created to glorify God. He doesn't deny that. He just doesn't know how to put it together with his experience. So in verses, in verses 13 to 18, he's right back at it again. Here comes the unanswered prayer again. The prayer is still an answer. And he still continues looking for hope, for hope at yet unseen, as yet unseen. But now, accompanied by two more probing questions, and here it is. I am burdened by you, O God. I am still waiting for your help, and still no answer. And his questions are, why? Why am I still waiting for help if there is no answer? Number two, why you? It's interesting. My question when I'm in the pit is usually, why me, O Lord? That is not Haman's question. His question is, why you? What is this and what is this for and why are you behind this? What are you up to, God? Because you're up to something and this and I don't see it. Listen to how he puts it in verse 13. But I, O Lord, cried to you, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. This psalmist doesn't understand what is going on. So his question is, why? Why is this being done here? What is this all about? But he also acknowledges this, that God is behind the purpose that he does not understand. Why you? Why are you doing this, O Lord? Now, so far, we've learned a lot of things from this psalm. We've learned that there are not always happy endings in a fallen world, even for godly believers. We've learned that there is a, such a thing as unrelieved suffering in believers' lives. We've learned that very, very mature believers can experience profound dissatisfaction in this present fallen world. And we've learned that some believers go through that and still never give up. And that is very encouraging. 
but I have more encouragement for you from this psalm. Our gracious, loving, wise God and Heavenly Father never leaves us without hope, even when we can see it or feel it. So you ask me, where? Where is it in this psalm? Where is it found in these words? Well, let me show you four things in this psalm that are filled with hope and speak to believers that today are feeling like they are in Psalm 88. Maybe that's you. Speak to us as well, uh, to those who love believers who are in in this place and who are trying to figure out how to be a comfort and not a burden or discouragement to them in their particular trials. So, four things. Number one, where is this psalm found? Where is this psalm found? Well, it's in the book, in the book of the people of God, in the inspired hymn book of the Old Testament. So God ordered this lament of Haman the Ezraite to be put in Scripture and be sung in worship to him. Just take, take, take a moment, a moment to take that in, just a minute. I mean, if we could interview this man today, this Haman the Ezraite, and we told him, hey, Haman, do you know that God put your hopeless lament in the Bible and told us to sing it? And being one of the wisest men of his time, Haman, I think, would know immediately two things. Number one, he would have said, Lord, you did hear me. You did understand me. Even when I did not know that you heard me. You said it would go in your book and that your people would sing my hopeless lament for thousands of years? Number two, he would know, oh Lord, there are other people who come into your presence with the same troubles I have. And they need to be able to sing the same song that I wrote. And you are ministering to them with my grief. So he realizes my troubles do not just belong to me. They belong to all the people of God for their edification and encouragement. Now, I want to say this very carefully because I know there are people here and in my congregation as well that have suffered in ways that I could not even comprehend. I, could, I couldn't even talk intelligibly about them. But sisters and brothers, if you are there in Psalm 88 with Haman the Ezraite, with these trials and troubles, let me tell you that your troubles do not belong to you alone. God always appoints for us what he means for the blessing of all the people of God. Haman would acknowledge that today if we speak to him, 
having heard that his desperate, hopeless prayer was put in the Bible and was put in this hymn book for us to sing it. We needed to be able to sing this because so many times we find ourselves here. This is a great encouragement. Do not miss that encouragement. Number two, this psalm, in all his excruciating agony, still clearly knows who God is and hangs its one explicit comfort on that point. In all his excruciating agony, this psalmist still knows who God is, and he bases his comfort in this reality. Where? In the very first phrase of the psalm. Just look at it. O Lord, God of my salvation. That's it. That's the high point of this psalm. Everything from there, from there is downhill. This is the one explicit comfort that the psalmist still knows. He still knows that his God is his only help, his only hope, and he calls him Yahweh, the God of my salvation. Many times in the Christian life, God's answer to our why is not usually an explanation of his providence to us, but a deeper revelation of his person to us. In other words, he will often answer your whys with a who. Haman asks, Lord, why are you doing this? And he answers usually to us, let me show you who I am. Who I am. In your troubles, let me show you who I am. And if you see him in those troubles, that will be enough. You may not have the answers here, but you will have him. And that will be enough. Number three. Notice where the psalmist wants to continue to live for God and glorify God even in his trouble and suffering. You see that in verses 10 to 12 where he's asking the question, Lord, how am I going to praise you if I'm dead? He wants to live for God's glory. He, he is having this theological debate in his head, and he's asking, if I die, how am I going to praise my God? And that tells you about his heart. He wants to praise God even in the grave. He wants to glorify God even in his trouble and suffering. A commentator says, this author, author like Job, does not give up. He completes his prayer still in the dark and totally unrewarded and the taunt of Satan, does Job fear God for nothing, is once again answered in the faith of a believer in his God. Two things that I want you to learn from this believer. One is this. Trouble will come. It is not an accident. It is not outside of God's control. It is not without purpose. Job 
taught us that man is born to trouble. And it's so encouraging to remember that because when I get into deep trouble, that is one of the very first things that I forget. Why is this happening to me? Where is God? God is not in control. The Lord has appointed trouble for his people, for his glory, and their everlasting good. And this psalmist, though he doesn't know how or why, actually ends up bearing witness to that truth. Second thing is this. The troubles and sufferings that we endure, rather than calling into question the genuineness of God's love for us, they actually proves it. That is the message of Romans 8.18 or Philippians 1.29. That is that our sonship, our adoption, is actually proved or revealed in our troubles. Hebrews tells us about that as well. There was a preacher in England called Charles Simeon, and he comments about this truth. He says, There are some who by God himself are brought into manifold temptations and, are, and have suffered to experience much darkness in their souls. And though at first sight it should seem as if these persons were less beloved of the Lord than others, the truth is that, the truth is that they are often to be found amongst those who are his chief favorites. Whom the Lord loveth, he chastened him. Brothers and sisters, could it be that your Lord is speaking his love to you, to your heart, in your deepest troubles? Remember that song, How Firm a Foundation? It asks us to sing and sanctify us to our deepest distress. Now, let me pause right now and speak to those who are here who are maybe not believers. You may be here and you're not a Christian. You have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he suffered freely in the gospel. Well, first of all, we are, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here with us. And to be honest, you may be thinking that Christians are rather unrealistic and living in la-la land about suffering. I think this psalm will disabuse you of that particular opinion. But I do want to say this. There is something worse than being in the place of Psalm 88. It is one thing to find yourself completely abandoned by friends, by friends and acquaintances as this psalmist was and have only God to cry out for help. But my friends, if you don't believe in God, if you think that there's no God out there and you believe that there is no God out there, when your deepest troubles come, it's you and nothing nothing else and trust me that is a far worse worse place to be at than this psalmist this psalmist knows that he has someone to speak to even if he doesn't hear him back 
at this moment. And my friends, this hopelessness experienced by the psalmist was only apparent. And it was only temporary. There will be a hopelessness that is real and never ending. There will be people who have turned their back on God and his son as he is offered in the gospel who will never, ever see the end of the tunnel, the light at the end of the tunnel, because there is no light at the end of the tunnel. This is why we are so eager to share the gospel as Christians with our neighbors and friends, not because we think we're better than them, but because we, undeserving, hell-bound sinners, have been saved by God and by his mercy. And we don't want anyone to experience that never-ending hopelessness. Will you come to him today? One last thing. By way of encouragement to you all, the suffering of this psalm is also the suffering of Jesus Christ. And the despair of this psalm is answered in Jesus' resurrection. I could preach a whole sermon on that. And, but if you remember, in John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus goes into Jerusalem for the last time in his earthly ministry. And here we're told that Jesus says this, Now is my soul troubled. And what, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, bear that in mind and look at verse 3 in Psalm 88. My soul is full of troubles. So here, Jesus on his way to the cross and his soul is troubled. And then immediately, what does he want to do? He wants to glorify his Father. Verses 10 and 12 of Psalm 88 his soul is in trouble, and he wants to glorify his father, just like the psalmist. Later on the cross, we read that Jesus actually cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 88, look at the language one more time. You have put me in the lowest pit. Your wrath has wrestled upon me. You have afflicted me. You have removed my acquaintances. Why do you reject my soul? In other words... Why have you forsaken me? Jesus also says this on the cross to the Father. Christian, when you find yourself in Psalm 88, in this kind of deep trouble, please know that you're being granted by your loving, gracious Father just a tiny, tiny taste of what he endured for you to the full. Paul told the Philippians, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Was there ever any sorrow like his sorrow? Our burdens pale in comparison to the burdens that he bore for us, and he bore them freely. Only Jesus' suffering can answer the realities that are described here in Psalm 88. I love what Andrew Bonar says about this passage. He says this, 
At such a price was salvation purchased by him who is the resurrection and the light. He who himself wrestled for life and resurrection in our name, and that prices so uh, on the, the prices so paid in the is the reason why to us salvation is free. And so we hear in solemn joy the harp of Judah struck by Haman the Hezrahite to overawe our souls, not, not with his own sorrows, but with the sorrowful days and nights of the men of sorrows. Haman one day will stand before his Lord and he will just blush at the mention of his troubles in comparison to the troubles of his Savior. Troubles that he willingly bore for him and for us. There's even more hope than that. Do you remember that cry, that question of verses 10 to 12, that theological question in the mind of the Hezrahite? That question in verse 10, do you work wonders for the dead? Do, you, do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? And God's answer is, yes! Yes, it will. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. We read that in another psalm. That's not about David. It's about Jesus. In Jesus' death and resurrection, God has performed wonders and caused departed spirits to rise and praise him and has declared his loving kindness to you in the grave. Thanks to Jesus, yes, we can glorify God in our death. Even after death, we still get to praise God. Yes, it is the darkest psalm in the Psalter. But because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is hope that brothers and sisters, friends, it will never die out if you are in him. Let's pray. What a tremendous psalm we have just read, Father. We thank you for the reality of pain, of suffering. We thank you that you do not tell us to ignore it. Rather, you encourage us, encourage us to go to you with our suffering, with our pain. Father, we ask that you would encourage us by biblical thinking about the hard places in our lives. We pray that we would be a witness of your faithfulness in our troubles. Father, we pray that those of us, those of us here right now in this room who are going through dark times in our, in our own lives will not go through them alone. Help us to live as a church together and carry the burdens of each other. Help us to cry out to you, the God of our salvation, and to your people as we seek to find your face, even in the darkest pit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.